Examining the Vision for Space Exploration, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. In barely two weeks, some of the most distinguished voices in the American space exploration effort will gather at Stanford University to talk about the future. Lou Friedman, the executive director of the Planetary Society, joins us for a preview of this conference. Bill Nye, the science guy, looks up in wonder at the clouds in the Martian sky. Emily Lakdawalla's Q&A will name names on Mercury. And Bruce Betts has a year in space calendar for the lucky winner of this week's space trivia contest, along with a guide to what's up in the night sky for the rest of us. Can you say 3-2-1 blast-off? Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic says we're getting closer to regularly scheduled space tourism. The company's Spaceship 2 and Mothership White Knight 2 are almost ready to be rolled out for flight tests by Mojave, California's Scaled Composites. You can see these beautiful birds at planetary.org. I'll be right back with Lou Friedman. Here's Bill Nye. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy here, Vice President of the Planetary Society. And this week, I'd like to talk again briefly about the light on Mars. No, not, not really the light. The shadows on Mars. Now, if you uh, are a student of Mars, I hope you are, you've seen shadows in pictures under the rocks, the next, the rocks on Mars. But these shadows are coming from the sky. It turns out there are clouds in the Martian atmosphere thick enough to cast substantial shadows. Uh, up to 40% of the sun's brightness will be diminished by these high, high clouds that form on tiny, tiny particles of dust, crystals of dry ice, of frozen carbon dioxide, perhaps a little frozen water mixed in, are barely a half of a tenth of the diameter of a human hair. They're a micrometer, a, a micron, a millionth of a meter in size. That's small, my friends, but there are enough of them to cast shadows and cool off the surface up to 10 degrees cooler when you're under a cloud on Mars rather than out in the bright sunshine. And so what happens is these enormous bubbles of warm Martian air get squeezed up by cool air around it and drive the Martian winds. And we get these enormous waves in the Martian atmosphere that drive the Martian winds. And we've seen the winds. They blow the dust off the solar panels on the Spirit and Opportunity rover from time to time. And we can see dust devils in still photographs. It's amazing. So here's the thing. The dust that gets blown in the air must contribute to the formation of clouds, just as it does on Earth. We get dust blown off the deserts. We get salt crystals blown off the sea that form the clouds on Earth. But on Mars, some of this dust comes from outer space. It's meteoroid dust. So next time you're on Mars, I hope you've got it made in the shade. And that shade is from high ice clouds above. Who knows what we'll learn about planetary weather by studying the weather on Mars. Oh, this is exciting, you guys. I may, have to, I may have to talk about this next week. Thanks for listening, my friends. Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy here. Talk to you next time on Planetary Radio. January 14, 2004. President George W. Bush announces a new vision for space exploration. That vision has guided United States space policy ever since. On February 12th and 13th, 
Some of the people who helped set that course will join colleagues from throughout the American space community to share their thoughts about the status of that vision and look toward a future that will bring a new administration to Washington in less than a year. Lou Friedman, executive director of the Planetary Society, is one of the organizers of this gathering. I spoke with him just a few days ago. Lou, thanks for rejoining us on Planetary Radio. Always a pleasure to talk to the executive director. What is the society up to uh, at Stanford University in a couple of weeks as we speak? Uh, We are doing a workshop up at uh, Stanford University, uh, co-hosted with the Stanford University Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. It's called Examining the Vision, Balancing Science and Exploration. And uh, what we're really doing is reviewing the whole vision for space exploration and the policy that goes into uh, human spaceflight. Uh, with an idea that uh, things are changing. There's going to be a new administration. In case you didn't know that, there's a presidential election One way or up. another, there yeah. will be a new administration. That's right. definite. And what's also definite is they will have new budgets and new priorities. They will not have the political initiative of the vision for space exploration. And so they'll be relooking at the at all of the questions that go into human space flight. Uh, there are a lot of budget concerns. The U.S. Government Accounting Office uh, has actually issued a report which says that uh, uh, the vision for space exploration implementation plans can't be afforded uh, within the existing budget. Uh, and as uh, members of the Planetary Society know, of course, there have been debates uh, in Congress in the last couple of years about the balance between science and exploration. So um, it's a good time to relook at the uh, whole vision and uh, to examine it. And uh, so we've assembled a uh, a very large group of experts, uh, not that large. uh, It's limited to 50 people, and uh, they're experts in various fields of space exploration. This is quite a group. They're a very distinguished group. It is a distinguished group. We have uh, some outstanding leaders, uh, uh, people who've been involved in the NASA program, people who have been involved in the aerospace industry, uh, scientists, engineers, policy experts. And the whole purpose is to really do a wide-range look at uh, all of the questions, the access to space, the status of the launch vehicles, uh, the Ares development, the consideration of expendable, other expendable launch vehicles like the Atlas, um, questions of the lunar base and uh, the debate between lunar base and lunar sorties that went into that uh, that discussion, uh, the consideration of alternate destinations. Members of the Planetary Society know from the last issue of the Planetary Report that there's a, a consideration of uh, human missions to asteroids as playing a key role in the vision for space exploration. Uh, that's an alternate destination. It's not in the plan right now, but I think that'll be given some consideration at our meeting as well. Um, but the... the the, the underlying theme, of course, is support for space exploration and support for human spaceflight, but balancing it with the overall uh, uh, considerations that go into it. And so I think we'll be doing a wide-ranging look. Wide-ranging look, but no preconceived notions. I mean, maybe on the part of some of the individual participants, but the conference itself is not going in with a bias. Yeah, what I said uh, about that is uh, many of the uh, participants will be coming there with uh, uh, opinions. Uh, they will have answers. Uh, many will be coming with questions. Uh, by the way, I'm in both camps. Uh, I have uh, I have lots of opinions and lots of answers, but I also have lots of questions. And there are many of these subjects that I really don't know enough to uh, form a, a firm opinion on right now. But uh, there will be people coming in with uh, 
with points of view, but I think by and large it's going to be a uh, open discussion with uh, uh, not a lot of preconceived opinions and not a lot of uh, and certainly the workshop as a as a consensus will will not have a predetermined outcome. This is not something new for the society. The Planetary Society has sponsored conferences similar to this uh, many times. Yes, actually, if you go back into the uh, uh, mid-1980s, we held uh, a workshop uh, in a very similar vein, uh, also by invitation only. This one was held in Washington. It was called A Space Station Worth the Cost, challenging some of the uh, plans for the then space station freedom and uh, talking about some of the objectives that uh, could make the space station worth the cost, one of them being international cooperation, which I'm pleased to say did become a major part of the development of the International uh, Space Station. Uh, in the early 90s, we held a conference on the Mars program and following the uh, terrible loss of Mars Observer when some people were saying uh, maybe we shouldn't continue on with uh, the, uh, the uh, a replacement Mars mission, and we ended up advocating uh, missions that go every Mars opportunity, and that's indeed what what's happened. So it's a, it was a good result there. We held a workshop back in 2003 on space transportation, that led to a study which uh, is called was called extending human presence into the solar system, led by a fellow named Mike Griffin uh, <laughs> and an ex astronaut uh, Owen Garriott. And uh, the Griffin-Garriott report uh, was very influential, uh, and um, indeed, when Mike uh, was uh, first uh, first press conference as the new NASA administrator, he referred to the Planetary Society study as, uh, you can read about all what I want to do in the Planetary Society study, he said. Now, it hasn't all worked out exactly like that, but that's one of the questions we'll be looking at as we examine the vision. One of the concerns that I have personally is the lack of public response to this. I don't think it's generated the kind of public excitement, which ultimately translates into political support, that I wish it had. There's a bit of a been-there-done-that aspect uh, about going back to the moon. Uh, And I think that that weighs heavily on a lot of people who are looking at at the vision right now, wondering, does it take more to generate the kind of public support uh, that we all hope it gets? I should mention that Owen Garriott, I think I saw his name as one of the participants uh, for the conference coming in. Yeah, we have a number of people. I'm not going to mention all of them who are participants uh, in the conference. Uh, We have kind of promised that this uh, workshop would be uh, not by invitation only and without press. No press, even yours truly. Yes, uh, Matt, I know you want to come, but uh, (laughs) uh, I had one uh, reporter ask me the other day, well, what if I'm hanging outside the window? (laughs) And I said, if you're hanging, we can probably get a workshop consensus on that one. But I won't tell you who the reporter was who, uh, wasn't who asked that question. Um, wasn't you. No, there is a lot of interest in this workshop, but we have opted to do this as a closed workshop, not because we're doing any secret deliberations, but we really need an open discussion uh, without fear of being quoted. And then as as uh, as a consensus begins to emerge and the follow-ons begin to, to take shape, we'll certainly involve uh, telling people about it, involving our members, uh, having dialogue about it, maybe follow-on studies, maybe follow-on forums, hmm. uh, something I'm thinking about. But this is like the uh, chef getting the ingredients together. You may not want to be in the kitchen when that happens. You want to be there nearer when it's all coming together. I just want to be at the table That's it, when, when it's served. <laughs> We'll hear more from Lou Friedman about examining the vision after a break. This is Planetary Radio.
Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the science guy here. I hope you're enjoying Planetary Radio. We put a lot of work into this show and all our other great Planetary Society projects. I've been a member since the disco era. Now I'm the Society's Vice President. And you may well ask, why do we go to all this trouble? Simple. We believe in the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. You probably do too, or you wouldn't be listening. Of course, you can do more than just listen. You can become part of the action, helping us fly solar sails, discover new planets, and search for extraterrestrial intelligence and life elsewhere in the universe. Here's how to find out more. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Lou Friedman is giving us a preview of a conference coming to Stanford University on February 12 and 13. The executive director of the Planetary Society is co-organizer of this gathering, titled Examining the Vision, Balancing Science and Exploration. That's the vision for space exploration, of course, and it has guided NASA for four years. I said that the list of participants is is very distinguished, very exciting, but so is the lineup, the various discussions that are underway, and I wonder if you could talk about some of those uh, topics that will be individually discussed. Uh, we're going to have a panel on alternate destinations, we're going to have a panel on the uh, humans and robots, how they, the synergy or separation of functions goes into that, uh, looking at the Mars goal. Uh, looking at the lunar base goal, I mentioned earlier access to space and launch vehicles. Uh, we're going to even have a panel on uh, Earth science and uh, the emerging importance of a uh, of a new NASA initiative or a new initiative to uh, uh, replace some of our old Earth observing satellites uh, in order to understand the processes of climate change. That we'll uh, be considering commercial and uh, private uh, entrepreneurial uh, space uh, activities as well. Uh, so as I say, I think it's pretty much a broad look, but still with the focus of human space exploration. That's the ultimate focus, uh, because that's where the controversy and that's where the money uh, will end up, and that's where the big political support is needed. The timing of this, obviously, it is a political season, and you said there will be a new administration no matter what, and we don't need to get heavily into politics, but certainly those of us who are interested in space exploration, space development, we're not hearing much of this on the stump out there during primary season. Well, uh, the target of our workshop is a new administration. How we present it to them uh, still remains to be determined. In past years, that often happens during the time uh, of transition from one administration to the next or in the early days of a new administration. Myself, I have a kind of... um, reluctance to uh, push candidates to talk about this particular space policy or that particular uh, space issue, uh, it often gets, uh, it often elicits a comment which is uh, in the middle of a campaign, maybe not the most thoughtful one. If you're in uh, Florida, you might talk about jobs for Kennedy Space Center instead of really space policy because you're basically responding to the local interest. Or if you're in Texas, you'll have a different discussion. Or in California, you might end up saying, well, let's do aviation work and not do uh, uh, stuff for space. Lots of things can come out in a campaign that you wish you hadn't said when you get into office. So I'm not actually one who feels it's uh, uh, vital to try and get the candidate to tell 
his or her uh, specific space policy. Uh, but I do think it's important for the public to ask questions about it because it does show interest in space. And one thing we do want the candidates to know is that there's interest in space exploration. All that being said, I actually disagree with you. Uh, you said that we haven't heard much. And this year we heard uh, a speech last October from uh, uh, Hillary Clinton running for president uh, giving a space policy and talking about uh, space science. And I don't ever remember a candidate that early in the process uh, giving such a comprehensive speech on space policy. And just a few weeks ago, we heard from uh, Barack Obama uh, twice. We actually heard a, a statement which was very dismissive of uh, space exploration and then a correction a few weeks later saying, no, that he was much more supportive than that one-line answer hmm. might have indicated. So uh, that that's the danger I was talking about earlier. Uh, I, I gather that uh, on the Republican side, Rudy Giuliani made a statement uh, down in Florida, uh, his support for space exploration. And so uh, we've heard things. Uh, of course, I, I can't let this go, and I'm I, you're not going to get anything partisan out of me whatsoever. Uh, but I can't uh, let this go completely without noting that uh, in one of the Republican presidential debates, um, the candidate was asked to take a pledge that he supports Mars exploration, and uh, which I think is kind of naive to get a candidate to take a pledge that about something like that. Uh, and unfortunately, the candidate gave a jocular answer, which is sometimes what you don't want to happen, because you don't want space to be dismissed as something that uh, isn't serious enough. And his jocular answer was, well, yes, uh, I'd like to send Hillary Clinton to Mars. Yeah, yes, uh, I heard that and uh, so that's the kind of thing that I like to avoid. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, it is a campaign season. You're going to hear everything in bits and pieces. And right now, uh, if you go to our website, you'll see that we're uh, asking our members to uh, show their support for space by writing into these presidential debates to ask questions of the candidate about space exploration. Lou, we're just about out of time. You have been a part of this debate for many, many years now, through many ups and downs. Do you have any personal thoughts you'd want to share about the, your current outlook and your uh, optimism or, or lack of it? Well, thanks for asking me. Uh, yeah, I do. We have a conundrum. There is a lot we want to do. We're doing some great stuff in space, and we can't ever lose sight of that, how privileged we are to be part of a, a nation that's exploring all the planets and going out and doing and sending up you know dozens of satellites all the time. It's just, it's just, uh, it, it is great. But we can't spend the kind of money that we really want to do to send humans to Mars the way I envisioned a few years ago and the way uh, uh, most of us want to who are supporters of space exploration or the way the vision for space exploration was uh, was uh, written. So what's the solution? Solution is going to have to be an international one. I'm developing a whole lot of thoughts about this in which uh, there's much more internationalization of the lunar base goal in which the uh, interest of China, India, Japan, Europe, and Russia is taken into account. And instead of creating a nationalistic uh, lunar base, which is going to bog us down in both terms of money and effort, uh, we help others create an international lunar base, and we begin to develop uh, uh, some things that take us beyond the moon, beyond the achievement we did 40 years ago, uh, and thereby invigorate a new generation into a new set of accomplishments beyond the moon.
Lou, as always, thank you very much. It's always uh, wonderful to talk with you. Well, thank you, and uh, I I love doing it, and I'll be back. (laughs) He will. He's Lou Friedman, co-founder of the Planetary Society and the executive director of the Society, the only person who's ever held that uh, that position. We're going to go to the director of projects for the Planetary Society in uh, just a few moments here. That'll be Bruce Betts with this week's edition of What's Up. But first, this Q&A from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, How did the craters on Mercury get named? Messenger's first images from Mercury have contained some craters that already have names, like Vivaldi, because these craters were mapped and named from Mariner 10 images. Messenger's images have also revealed vast stretches of terrain that are new to planetary cartographers, so they don't have names yet. The naming of mappable features on all the solid bodies in the solar system is governed by the International Astronomical Union, or IAU. The IAU has laid out detailed thematic conventions for naming solar system features. For example, on Mercury, craters are named for deceased artists, musicians, painters, and authors, Vivaldi being one example. Steep-cliffed faults on Mercury are named for ships of discovery, like the Santa Maria. And valleys are named for radio telescope facilities like Arecibo. These conventions are different for each planet and moon. Features on Mercury get named after a scientist determines that it would help scientific discussion for a feature to have a name. The scientist then submits an image and description of the feature to the IAU, along with an explanation of why it needs a name. Note that the scientist doesn't actually choose the name. The scientist can suggest one, but feature names are formally recommended by a scientific committee for each planet, and that committee doesn't have to listen to the scientist's suggestion. After the committee's recommended name is given final approval by the IAU's Working Group for Planetary System Nomenclature, the feature can finally be spoken about by name on maps and in scientific publications. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Well, just as forecasted, we go from the executive director of the Planetary Society to its director of projects. Why, it's Dr. Bruce Betts rejoining us for a look at the night sky and a bunch of other fun stuff because it's time for What's Up. Hey, welcome back. Hey, thank you very much. There's a lot of stuff up there. February is a lot of stuff going on. Busy month. Busy month, and it starts right on February 1st. So uh, depending on when you're hearing this show, you may still be able to catch the conjunction of Venus and Jupiter in the pre-dawn sky. Conjunction, junction. Hey, what's your function? Conjunction, (laughs) junction. Yes, if you can look up the two extremely bright, the two brightest planets, two extremely bright star-like objects in the pre-dawn sky in the east, can't miss them. Even if you don't check it out on February 1st, they'll still be fairly close together for a few days before and after. And Venus is the brighter of the two. So a pretty cool pre-dawn happening. And then we've got eclipses this month. It's an eclipse month, annual solar eclipse happening uh, if uh, you're hanging out in Antarctica or in oceans nearby. But if you're in New Zealand or in parts of eastern Australia, as I know some of our listeners are, you can catch a partial solar eclipse on February 7th. Uh, Go to the uh, NASA eclipse page. We should give them a link to that on I'll make a note of it. And then also February 20th or 21st, depending on your time zone, total lunar eclipse. Once again, got another really cool total lunar eclipse. This time it's going to be in the evening for those of us uh, 
here on the west coast of North America. But this, uh, this beast is going to be visible from South America, most of North America, as well as Western Europe, Africa, and Western Asia. It will mm. actually rise in eclipse for us here on the Pacific coast. And the mid-eclipse time, 726 p.m. Pacific time on February 20th. Again, go to the NASA Eclipse page, get more information for your particular location. Uh, we also have other planets hanging out in the night sky you can check out anytime you want. We've got Mars in the evening sky uh, looking bright overhead, bright reddish, but starting to dim kind of a lot now as we leave opposition. But speaking of opposition, Saturn at opposition at the end of the month. So Saturn arising in the early evening, setting just before dawn and uh, looking kind of yellowish, but rising in the, as usual, rising in the east, setting in the west. Funny how those things work. And now on to this week in space history. It is uh, a couple sad milestones this week. We mm. uh, look back with reverence to the Challenger and Columbia tragedies. Both happened in this week uh, in 1986 and 2003, respectively, uh, both losing uh, seven astronauts. So we, we uh, think about them as we look back. Uh, on to some, some happier anniversaries. 1971, Apollo 14 landed on the moon during this week. And in 1958, 50 years ago, Explorer 1 becomes the first successful American satellite. Which leads me to Random Space Fact! Scales. Trying. Explorer 1 launched January 31st, 1958. Uh, the signal ended when the batteries ran out about uh, seven years later. I'm sorry, not seven years. No, seven, come on. <laughs> yes, they were lithium-ion batteries. They were fabulous. They keep going and going. Going and going. Let's try that. Seven had nothing to do with anything. It was just stuck in my head. May 23rd, 1958, a few months later, signal ended when the batteries actually ran out. We'll get back to, to when it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, but let me give you one other tidbit. It orbited the Earth once every about 115 minutes. I was so envious because it should have been us, the local paper, the Times. We'll give them credit. They found a couple of guys who went on the original Explorer 1 team with Werner von Braun and Van Allen, all those guys, and, and they talked to them. They're still around. we got to try and get one of those guys. Even that would be great. We're going to miss the anniversary, but they're still in the area. We'll, I'm going to work on that. You do that. Okay. You try to hunt them down. In the meantime... I'll go on to our trivia contest, and, and we'll come back to our friend Explorer 1. But first, the trivia contest we asked you before, what were the first two manned spacecraft to dock in space? How'd we do, man? Okay, keywords here, manned, and two of two. them. <laughs> That's right, and docked, not just got close enough to wave to each other, right? Correct. Because that confused a lot of people. We got Gemini with the Agena, but... That wasn't manned. Other people who just talked about getting close together. And then a lot of people who just didn't get it because they figured it was Apollo 9, which was wonderful. It uh, happened not long after in March of 1969. You, 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 you dog, you were looking for Soyuz 4 and 5, <laughs> weren't you? Yes, I was because they were the first two manned spacecraft to dock in space. In January of 1969. Yes, indeed. So beating uh, the, the American Apollo 9 by a couple months. So you know who got it? Barry Olson. I think it's been over three years since Barry won. <laughs> Barry's name came up, random.org. And your frightening list of winners that fills your head. Isn't that something? <laughs> 
<laughs> They're all up there. Anyway, Barry, congratulations. You've won one of those year in space calendars. Barry is uh, in Alberta, Canada, Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, where we have lots of uh, listeners. They're not all in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. They're spread around the globe. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to the next trivia contest. In what year did Explorer 1 not – when did the batteries run out? They've established that was 1958. In what year did Explorer 1 launched? In 1958, of course. When did it re-enter the Earth's atmosphere? You can give me the date, too, if you want. But for the contest, just what year did Explorer 1 re-enter the Earth's atmosphere? Go to planetary.org radio to find out how to enter. You have until Monday, February 4, at 2 p.m. Pacific time to get us that answer. Join in. Get that T-shirt, and uh, we'll get out of here. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about catapults launching giant cheese balls. Thank you, and good night. Is that an alternative launch uh, system that's being considered? They're considering it, yes, along with electromagnetic rails launching (laughs) cheese balls embedded with iron. It's a, yeah, a lot of cutting-edge research going absolutely nowhere in those fields. Cheesy. Okay, that's uh, Bruce Betts. He's the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here for What's Up? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Next time, an astronaut's exercise program. Have a great week.